Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. David, great to be able to catch up with you. It definitely has been a long time. And I know viewers for so many years um, love to listen to what you have to say, you know, from a big picture perspective, of course, um, but also how you think about investing, period, let alone adding into the global element. So why don't I just get your take in terms of what, what you've been up to recently in terms of how you're looking at the world? Sure. Um, I think that uh, the most important thing to do is to just get a bit of perspective on what's going on here. So there was a recession last year, and that's a, a very important event. Uh, recessions are the end of a business cycle and the start of a new one. Uh, that recession uh, ended after two months, so we're now about a year and a half into an expansion. So we have to describe our current state of circumstances as being mid-cycle. So it's, it's very important to know that because the market behaves differently in the middle of a cycle and then in the later part of a cycle than it does in the beginning. At the very beginning, the things that were beaten up the most have the tendency to bounce the most. When you get to the middle of the cycle, what happens is that a lot of the damage that was done is repaired, and then the market starts looking forward for the companies that can grow in the future. So I think that's probably the most important uh, you know, macro insight which I would give, which is that it's unlikely that the uh, so-called reopening stocks have bounced so strongly between November and March. Uh, and many of them are businesses that were in long-term secular decline. It's unlikely for them to accelerate from here. And, and the final part I'd say about that for evidence on it is we've seen a very, very strong growth rate. We were growing reputedly at five or 6%. Well, we're gonna have to compare against that. Certainly by the time we get into early next year, we'll have to compare against it. So we're gonna get a deceleration. Five could go to four, three, two. It's still growth. But when you have that deceleration, the market becomes more focused on quality and more focused on businesses that can grow. Okay. So where does that leave you, you know, in terms of the certain sectors? But before we even get to that, David, I want, I want you to maybe describe a little bit about your fund and where you invest. Sure. We have a family of funds uh, and we invest all over the world. Uh, they fall really into three categories. We have our uh, global equity funds that invest everywhere. Uh, examples would be Dynamic Global Discovery Fund and Dynamic Global Dividend Fund. There's a balanced strategy called Dynamic Global Asset Allocation, so that includes some fixed income. Then there's an American fund, the Dynamic American Fund, which invests exclusively in the United States. And then finally, there's the Dynamic International Discovery Fund, which invests everywhere in the world except for the United States and Canada. So we, we like to say that it's the extra piece to a uh, client's portfolio. If they already own their investments in North America, this is the piece that literally uh, invests in the companies they can't reach when they can only own securities that trade on North American exchanges. 
Okay. And, and from your perspective, David, um, where are you spending more of your time from a geographic perspective? Like what, what do you think is interesting these days in terms of what might be mispriced, underpriced, overpriced? Well, look, we, we look all over the world and we're very focused on finding good companies and finding industries where we think that the prospects are undervalued. So it doesn't end up being much of a geographic focus. I would say that as a generalization, there are more cyclicals uh, as a percentage of the market cap when you move outside of North America. Uh, so outside of North America, things like uh, energy, materials, industrials have a, a bigger piece of the market, same with financials than what you see in the US market. So definitely because we're focused on cyclicals because we wanna be exposed to a growing economy, uh, we definitely have probably spent more time on the international portion of the portfolio. Uh, as a generalization, one gravitates towards the United States to be defensive. Uh, U.S. outperformance does take place and it can be sustainable, but it tends to take place later in a cycle. And U.S. content is very, very useful when you go into a bear market because the U.S. usually finishes an outperformance cycle by further outperforming by going down less during the next bear market. Now, we're not seeing any indications of a bear market on the horizon, uh, so we're a long way away from having to, to be concerned about it. But as I mentioned earlier, we're already a year and a half or so past the end of the prior recession. So I think it makes sense for us to be more quality focused, more forward looking. Uh, that bear market like death and taxes is unavoidable, even if we can't see it over the horizon. Okay, um, let's pick up then on, on what you're talking about in terms of cyclicals, because I think a lot of people maybe have seen some significant rebounds in the cyclicals probably weren't there. They might not have felt comfortable, didn't know what areas to get into, you know, what cyclical might mean mm. to them. And maybe it means different things to different people. But I personally, I bought, just checking it today, um, and this is a bit of a pat on back, but I bought Stelco at about 15 bucks and it's got a four handle on it now. Look, honestly, I, uh, I've, I've got to apologize. I don't follow Canadian equities. Um, look, I understand uh, that the Steel Group uh, has done well. Uh, our focus has been uh, generally to avoid that industry, and I think for a couple reasons. Uh, one of them is there's very little market cap. Uh, so this may not make sense to a retail investor, but I want to say that Nucor at 30 or $40 billion is the biggest one. So that's not actually very big. It's actually quite difficult for institutions to invest in this space. Uh, a lot of the players have market caps that are in the single digits of billions. So it's very difficult to get a big position. The other decision that we have to make is we have to think about where the product is getting used and how else we could get exposed to the space. So I understand completely why the steals are coming from the just tremendous uh, shutdowns you saw in the manufacturing sector uh, last year in the months of uh, April, May, and June, how coming back from those shutdowns that there could be a huge rebound in pricing and in volumes. But the problem is going to be what the situation is for those businesses in the future. Uh, increasingly, construction is shifting away from steel. Uh, you know, I am actually much more interested in the technologies uh, for, uh, for, for green concrete. Uh, we own a Swiss company called Sika that makes uh, concrete additives 
and allows you to use less Portland cement and that improves the environmental footprint. Uh, and that fits within the current uh, cost structure of Portland cement. The steel industry, if it actually ends up complying with some of the environmental regulations could have a dramatic increase in its costs. Uh, the other issue that it faces is the issue of substitution. Uh, automobiles have shifted uh, more and more to using aluminum. Uh, aluminum is generally glued to the car. Zika makes the adhesives that are used to glue the aluminum. Increasingly, we're also seeing as people want to reduce the weight of a car that plastics are getting used. Uh, we own a company called Ems Chemi that makes the very advanced uh, plastic polymers that replace steel in the car. Their business literally is uh, almost entirely the replacement of steel. So, you know, I wanted to reference businesses that I think can grow more over the course of this cycle and aren't facing a long-term decline. So I'll congratulate anybody who got uh, the base metals and, and, and got the steels right. But the issue now is going to be how long to hang on. And, uh, you know, because ultimately a trade is where one needs to be right twice. And I try to avoid making decisions where I have to be right twice. If we can buy a company that's got very good long-term growth potential, but we got it on sale last year during a recession, uh, I think that's a fantastic opportunity. And that's where I focus. Understood. Um, I, I understand you do not like the steels. <laughs> You gave two names that, that really illustrate that because you're clearly not in, in the steel area, but you, you want some exposure to, to the replacement. So that, that's pretty interesting. I'm, I'm curious, um, both of those companies, what are the tickers? Do they have ADRs? Where are they located? You said- uh, I don't believe either one of them has a sponsored ADR. M's Chemi, uh, I believe the ticker is EMSN uh, on Zurich and Sika okay. is S-I-K-A on Zurich. Interesting, okay. So, okay, so that, that then is some of your cyclical exposure. What else falls under cyclicals for you then, David? Well, financial services. And I think that this is interesting from the viewpoint that we just saw over the course of the last couple of months, a pretty significant fall in interest rates, even though, uh, but, but without an underperformance by financial services. So that says to me that the market is looking forward uh, to the prospect of higher interest rates. And, and obviously, we're going to get an answer uh, from uh, the Fed. I mean, perhaps they will, they will talk about when they will taper uh, you know, at Jackson Hole. But I imagine that at some point, the Fed is going to withdraw monetary stimulus and rates are going to be higher. Uh, so that's an area that interests us. Uh, but I think, again, the idea is to take advantage of the bargains that we bought last year when the economy was in recession that have long-term growth opportunities. So I would be reluctant just to invest in any old insurance company or bank that will benefit from higher interest rates. I would want to invest in the ones that have a right to win in the future. So you know, I would bring up, for instance, Morgan Stanley. Uh, and the reason why I mention it is a lot of people are not aware that after the merger with Smith Barney, uh, it's become the largest wealth management firm in the world. It had previously been number two, but I think that now they're number one. And we know that household wealth has grown tremendously. Uh, so that's an important trend to benefit from. They've been making expansions into, into asset management so they can convert AUA to AUM. Uh, and then the other thing we've seen is a pretty extensive financialization of assets. You know, if you go back to what the statistics were 
10 or 15 years ago, half of new loans were generated by banks in the United States. And a statistic that I saw last year was that 85% of new credit was generated by non-banks. Ultimately, those non-banks are going to issue corporate bonds. So being an investment bank and being able to collect a fee for underwriting corporate bonds is a growth business. You know, the, the traditional banking business is being disintermediated. So I wouldn't want to be in a commoditized bank. I rather like First Republic Bank, which is the, um, uh, the largest private bank in the United States. Uh, and I want to say that they're in the top 30 of all banks in the United States. And they've been able to grow strongly by focusing on the ultra high net worth, providing those individuals with both deposit and lending products. And also over the last few years, growing dramatically and now becoming profitable in wealth management. So, you know, this is one of the growing trends, which is the focus on uh, highly customized services for the ultra high net worth, um, you know, and also the scarcity of the growth within financial services. Now, if rates rise, for sure you'll make money, you know, in the average bank if they, you know, perform at least in an average manner. But what if rates don't rise? And also, where's your opportunity to outgrow the cycle? And again, I'd like to go where there's the opportunity for outgrowth. Now, you have to pay a bit of a premium uh, for First Republic, which I think is well worth it. Morgan Stanley is an example of a, of a, of a company that's just statistically inexpensive. Uh, you know, looks very, so it looks very interesting, I think, by most anybody's lenses. It even has what many people would consider an attractive dividend, but I don't know what they consider attractive, but it pretty substantially increased its dividend recently. What, what is the dividend yield? Or... I remember two and change, but honestly, I haven't looked in a couple of weeks, but I do remember going through the analysis and thinking, uh, let's just quickly look at what its yield is relative to some of the other large cap banks. And I was actually shocked to see that because of the major increase that they'd made recently, that their yield was ahead. So I'm not an income investor, but I do think that, you know, we have to, we sh if we think about investing correctly, which is John Maynard Keynes maxim that it's a beauty contest where we have to judge who the other judges will find most beautiful. This creates an attraction to the income investor. And I think that a lot of them may not have considered Morgan Stanley, but uh, the, the returns to shareholders are much higher today than they were in the past. So they could potentially have an entirely new audience. Right. And again, a more sustainable business. I think that if we think about it historically, we would think about it as an investment bank, which you understand to be you know, very cyclical. Uh, wealth makes it less cyclical. Right. It's not not cyclical, but it's much less cyclical than investment banking, because as we know, if that window closes and there's no IPOs, you don't have a good quarter. Uh, but with wealth, you know, you collect the advisory fees every month. Yeah. Um, wondering what what is the what is, I don't know if you've looked at this lately, um, but what what does the valuation look like for Morgan Stanley these days? You know, I don't remember off the top of my head. I would say okay. that it's, uh, you know, relative to the market multiple, uh, you know, which I want to say is 20 or 21. I think that we're in the, uh, the low to mid teens. But to be blunt, that would be based upon what people's estimates are. So I'd be very careful about using it because normally when you look at the earnings estimates, that is the IBIS, the Bloomberg consensus, first call consensus for a bank. Uh, you know this from your experience dealing with investment banking analysts, that uh, they always bake in some form of interest rate increases in the future. So it's important to be taking those estimates with a bit of a grain of salt and then having your own view about whether or not rates will rise. 
Uh, that's part of the reason why when, you know, if the Fed unexpectedly cuts or is expected to rise and doesn't hike, the, the sector can trade off because there's usually an expectation in the estimates for higher rates. Um, there is no question that almost every financial institution benefits from higher rates. It, there's no guarantee with rates currently negative in Europe that rates will rise in the United States. They should, but it's not guaranteed. So I think it makes more sense to go where you've got other drivers. And the, the two securities I recommended are companies that have other drivers where even if rates are completely unchanged, they should be able to handily grow their businesses. Right. Um, I, I was actually kind of wondering too, though, if you look at, as I always look at financials, more on a price to book or sales to book level. So what does that look like? Well, to be blunt, I, look, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to apologize. I'm going to be the wet blanket uh, because I know that people look a lot at the valuation, and I don't think the people have asked the most important question, which is what causes a financial institution to outperform. Uh, and Steve Alexopoulos at J.P. Morgan's done some very interesting research on this, and actually, it isn't valuation. It isn't returns to shareholders. You get a lot of people asking about the buyback and the dividend. Yeah. There's no correlation between that and the performance of a bank, at least on you know the US coverage universe. So it should uh, be ROE. It should be ROE. Uh, it is RO, it's return on tangible equity and uh, net promoter score and growth of book value. Okay. The most interesting one though is the net promoter score. So basically, a lot of people think that a bank should be highly profitable and should have a very good efficiency ratio. It turns out that doesn't drive performance yeah. uh, because the net promoter score is almost going to be the inverse of that. That is, you know, the degree to which a client of the bank would recommend it to a friend. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mentioned First Republic Bank in particular because they have unprecedented net promoter scores. There are brands like Nike and Apple have net promoter scores that are like that of First Republic. The typical bank has half the net promoter score. You know, most people do not have nice things to say about their financial services provider uh, when they're surveyed. So, you know, again, uh, I could give you the statistics you're looking for, but we're focused on the statistics that drive the performance of the security over time. Yeah. Um, you know, again, it is, I think it's hard for people to understand. They were all taught that certain things were most important. And, and I spend a lot of time trying to focus on finding out what actually causes a stock to outperform over time, not the commonly held beliefs about which one is better than the other. Understood. Um, and fair point. I guess I was just trying to figure out, have I missed the run? Uh well, I, it's a very good question, and I put it to you very simply. Uh, the only thing that can really, really go wrong for one of for a well-positioned financial institution, and let's just you know make it simple. If you can get net new money, that is more important than anything else. So the following things will all be true of First Republic and Morgan Stanley, and our pick in the uh, in the Swiss private banks would be Julius Baer. If you can get net new money, that's critical. It doesn't matter what the valuation is of a wealth management firm that's in outflows. That's number one. Number two is uh, the interest rate curve can flatten, but an inverted curve is kryptonite to these businesses. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, when you talk about what the run is going to be like, ultimately, the run here is getting determined by rates, the curve can flatten, but if it inverts like it did uh, in early 2020, then that's a material adverse change and it's time to step to the sidelines. And if an institution can't attract net new money, uh, there's very little precedent for it outperforming sustainably if they're getting, uh, you know, if wealth is an important part of their business. Um, so again, that, you know, I, I remember this stuff vividly because, uh, you know, in terms of naming names here, uh, or trying to avoid doing it, that right. is, you know, we, when I was working on the Canadian equity team, uh, you know, there were certain publicly traded Canadian equity managers that looked very attractively valued by any measure, uh, during the early two thousands. But ultimately, it was very, very clear from experience, the ones who had net outflows did not have good share price performance. And the ones who had net inflows had very strong share price performance. And the other part about it, which makes it even more complicated is the businesses that are growing generally have ramping expenses. So as a result, they tend to be earning less money in the short term, but the market discounts the net new money and let's say the present value of the profits it'll produce in the future. And that's what you want to be focused on because there's no way to put a low enough price on a, on, on a, on a, on a melting iceberg to try to get it as a bargain. Right. Fair, fair point. Um, David, I want to, I, I know you're also focused on tech stocks and also healthcare, but I, I want to spend a little bit of time on healthcare because I don't think that that's something that gets mm -hmm. Quite frankly, a lot of coverage, and there's so many different areas within healthcare. So, what what might look interesting to you within that space? Well, I think first of all, the risk reward of healthcare is wonderful. We're talking here about the third best performing industry of all time, uh, and recorded history starts in 1970, such as the world. But anyway, uh, the third best performing industry of all time. We it couldn't have done that if it wasn't outperforming the market from time to time while the market was going up. And then on top of that, a consistent outperformer by preserving capital during bear markets. So given that we're past the early part of the cycle where you had people really focused on buying deep cyclicals, I think the people increasingly will look for more sustainable businesses and healthcare is a great place to do it. Uh, we think the best opportunities are in the picks and shovels for biotech. Uh, so examples would be Agilent or Donaher. These companies literally make the equipment and the supplies that are used to produce drugs. Uh, and I find that very interesting from the viewpoint that you don't have to pick sides. And as they said, the real money in the Klondike was made selling picks and shovels. Mm -hmm. uh, another area that we rather, we, well, I don't like it, but I see the opportunity is that diabetes is, uh, is, is, is an epidemic, it's getting worse. And uh, Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk have really made uh, tremendous inroads uh, in treating the disease, um, you know, including oral drugs, you know, pushing off as long as possible when people need to start injecting insulin. They're also making tremendous strides uh, in weight loss uh, you know, which is an area where we would expect, uh, you know, very significant growth. Uh, you know, we just need to be mindful with those businesses of patent expirations, but we're, we're, we're good for a while and uh, they've got pipelines that could ultimately backfill against that. Um, you know, the other area that I would uh, point out to in healthcare is where there's pent up demand because people have been un unable to go to the doctor uh, because of lockdowns and social distancing. So, you know, an example of that simply could be uh, eyeglass lenses. 
I mean, we own a, the Japanese company Hoya. They're the second largest producer of eyeglass lenses in the world, and they're the low-cost producer. And people are now returning to the optician, and staring at Zoom calls has not improved anybody's eyes. Uh, so, you know, our, our goal, you know, in our healthcare investments is to try to be part of the solution and to try to avoid the areas that are costing the healthcare system tremendous amounts of money and, and to go where the growth is and let's just say facilitate the future, but also to do it very conservatively. I mean, I don't have the judgment necessary to pick one biotech from another, but uh, I'm very certain uh, that if they develop a biologic drug, you know, a monoclonal antibody, uh, for instance, uh, that there's a good 30% chance that Lonza will produce it, and that's a long-term holding of ours, and uh, there's probably a 30% chance that it'll get produced on equipment or with filtration systems produced by Donaher, and it may well be analyzed for quality assurance purposes by a piece of equipment made by Agilent. So my probability of success is much higher on the pick and shovel companies. Got it. Um, let, I'd also like to get your, your take on um, the personal care space as well. Um, I, you know, I think certain areas within that obviously were hit dramatically during COVID. Nobody could go to the department stores, buy makeup, et cetera. Mm -hmm. People, of course, are also thinking maybe I don't need lipstick anymore because I got to wear a mask. So um, where, where do you stand on, on some of those areas within personal care? Yeah, so the personal care is one of the areas of consumer staples that we really like and we think is timely. Uh, and uh, the reasons are not just what you pointed out, which is that uh, as people may be returning to the office or they may be starting to travel, they may use more cosmetics and personal care products. But one of the things that I've learned is all these products have shelf lives. Uh, so ultimately, uh, a lot of lipstick dried out uh, you know, a lot of creams separated because they were past the best before date. Uh, so we're even seeing the stores getting rid of old cosmetics and personal care products and replacing them with fresh products as people return to the stores. So uh, there are obvious ways to invest in it. Uh, in the international fund and in the global funds, we own L'Oreal, and I think it's the finest personal care company in the world. And the reason why I say it is it has a complete price ladder. I mean, if you're, you know, if, if you don't have a lot of money, uh, they have popularly priced shampoos. And, you know, if you're doing very, very well, you can trade up to a pair of premium shampoo. Uh, so I like the full price ladder because some of their competitors, if you trade down, you'd be trading down to private label. So it's a more resilient business. But I'm much more excited about the picks and shovels side of this. There's a British company called Crota that trades on London, uh, and uh, they are the largest producer of the ingredients that go into personal care products, and in particular, the natural ingredients. I think that about 60% of their output are natural ingredients for household and personal care products. So you may have noticed this when you go to the grocery store or the drugstore. Increasingly, you are seeing claims people are making that the product is all natural. Well, right. it also needs to work, and Crota's made significant investments uh, in the technology to produce these products. Uh, one example, for instance, would be biosurfactants, and most soaps contain surfactants, and they have one that has no petrochemical uh, content. So that'd be a great example because, you know, if you do go and buy a soap and it says, you know, it, 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 it's carbon neutral or it, it doesn't contain any kind of petrochemicals, it likely has a biosurfactant. Uh, so this is an area that we think can outgrow the cycle. And 
I really don't see anything changing on that. I mean, in the last cycle, one of our best investments was a company called Fruiterom that made natural food ingredients. They were the largest producer in the world of natural food additives. We owned it from 2007 until 2017, and ultimately it was purchased by a competitor. Um, you know, I think that the shift towards natural and personal care could be a huge opportunity. Okay. And um, with respect to Crota, though, I mean, what, what kind of competition is there out there? Obviously, everybody seems to be moving this way. Everybody wants this. Well, first of all, you have to figure out how to do it. I mean, when they built the biosurfactant plant, it took a while to get it working. And, uh, you know, a lot of the competitors that are that are making these products from the uh, from the petroleum inputs, I mean, have their existing plant and would have costs associated with with closing it down. I think that one of the things Acrota where they're well positioned is, you know, their original products came from lanolin and der derivatives of lanolin, and that comes, I believe, out of the wool industry. So they had started originally as a naturally based business. Uh, they also are in the process uh, potentially of of separating their industrial chemicals business, which would make the company even more natural. Uh, and, and it's a separable business. So, you know, they have the ability to make, say, the transition towards the future. When I look at the other producers, uh, you know, within that category of, uh, of oleochemicals, I sort of see a combination of two different kinds of suppliers. Uh, one of them is people that are completely vertically integrated and likely don't sell to their competitors. And I think that cow in Japan might come as an example. Um, you know, and I think that the others are incumbent are incumbent chemical companies and uh, the, the move towards naturals, you know, is, 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 is something that one can't just drop everything and do. I mean, even in the case of the natural uh, food ingredients, I mean, Givadon transformed their business, but it took them 10 years to do it. And to be blunt in the long term, you know, again, I have no desire to sell one of my companies because then we have, uh, you know, reinvestment risk. We've got to find another one. But I do see this as a scarce asset and the people with melting icebergs might look at it. I, I have no idea. But, you know, because we do look at some of these stories with 10-year holding horizons and longer, it's not beyond uh, the realm of possibility. Um, it is, though, uh, the company has a very decent rating uh, because I didn't mention their healthcare-related businesses. Uh, they produce vaccine adjuvants and uh, are doing quite well uh, for unpleasant reasons, as we all know. Uh, they're also a producer of, uh, of, of part of the liquid nanoparticle technology that's used on mRNA vaccines. Uh, so, you know, again, that's another area that's seeing some pretty strong growth. Um, you know, but it's a smaller part of the story. It's mostly focused on the personal care. Interesting. Um, David, we only have time for about one more question or so. Um, uh, so maybe do you want to give us your top tech pick? Uh, our favorite pick within technology. Um, you know, what's interesting about it is, uh, you know, Donaher is a healthcare company, but everybody forgets they own Paul Corporation. And oh. therefore, they're one of the three dominant suppliers of filtration technology for making semiconductors. Hmm. When we discussed Hoya, I mentioned the eyeglass lenses. And because eyeglass lenses and endoscopes are over half of their profit, it's in healthcare. They are, however, the only producer of the photomasks for extreme ultraviolet lithography and dominate the photomasks for the leading edge nodes. 
So all your leading edge logic and memory likely has content from them. They're the only producer of glass substrate for hard disk platters. And if you use glass instead of aluminum, you can have 13 platters instead of 11. Do the math on how much extra storage you get. And half the hard disk platters in the world are, are still aluminum and can be glass. You know, when we move over to the proper technology sector, um, my favorite idea probably is ASM lithography. And I don't think that it's a heroic recommendation. Mm -hmm. The reason why I say it is that the leading edge in memory and logic is going to require leading edge lithography solutions. And a long time ago, Nikon and Canon gave up and were unable to execute uh, at the leading edge. And, uh, you know, as you know, there's a tremendous focus on building additional semiconductor uh, capacity. So I'd rather go where people don't have any choice and they don't have any choice when it comes to, uh, to the lithography because of the one large incumbent supplier. Uh, you know, the other thing, and I'd say this is going to be just a little bit of a counterintuitive approach to all this is uh, software has outgrown technology spending in every cycle since 2000. And in fact, software is one of the largest areas of business investment. So it could be as simple as a household name like Microsoft or Adobe. I could mm -hmm. go into them in depth, but they've only increased their relevance to business. And if business spending goes as it normally goes, they're going to keep on increasing their share of businesses' wallets until the next recession. And then it's, it's a software business. It's resilient. Uh, these are businesses that hold up better during recessions. And finally, I'd say the software has to get to market. And when large companies are implementing investment projects in software, they hire the consultants, people like Accenture. And that may be a, a simple way to get exposed very broadly to technology uh, spending, regardless of, of who it is that's modernizing. There's a very small number of these global consulting firms that large companies go to to implement their major information technology programs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good point to, to look at some of the consulting companies as well. It's almost, it might be an easy, an easier way or depending on your risk profile way to do it. Uh, it, it it's, it's an attractive way to look at it. What's important is to understand their geographic exposures, uh, their industry exposures. They are not, they're not created equally. IBM consulting, Accenture, Cognizant, Capgemini, the, the Indians, uh, like Infosys, all have very different exposures. I think that Accenture's is the most balanced uh, right now globally with some of the best uh, industry exposures. I would say that uh, Europe is probably the area that's most depressed and uh, Capgemini is highly exposed to Europe. Right. Uh, but again, uh, they'll reopen and it could do very, you know, we own some in the international fund, Europe mm -hmm. could reopen, they could do very well next year, we'll have to see next year how sustained it is, because as we know, European growth rates have been lower than growth rates globally and growth rates in North America. Mm -hmm. uh, no, absolutely. I was actually at Goldman when we took Accenture public, if you can believe that. It was a long time ago and I had forgotten about Capgemini. Not that I should have, but my mind hasn't been in those names, but oh, I'm going to take a look at them. Um, David, this was great catching up with you. Thank you so much. And thanks for the ideas and, and incredible knowledge. Appreciate Thank you it. for having me on. Thank you. We'll speak to you soon.